Well, I would ask you to take your Bible and find Romans chapter 11, if you would, with me. Book of Romans in the New Testament, find the big number 11. That's where we're going to be as we continue this journey through Book of Romans. Now, as you're finding that, I want to tell you a little bit about my first vehicle, all right? Very first car. It was actually a Chevrolet truck. And if you know me, I probably don't strike you as the truck guy, but uh, had a blue Chevy Custom Deluxe 1982 pickup truck. That was my first vehicle, and I, I was really proud of this vehicle. And uh, some of you are like, well, you should be. But for me, I think it was just because it was my first vehicle. It was just I had a car. I bought it with my own money, and I drove that thing. Now, I was so proud of it that I, I this is kind of funny, but I got a big Chevy bow tie decal and slapped it on the back of the cab. I was one of those guys, you know. Now I drive, I'm like, why do they have that? Yeah, I was one of those people. And, I had, uh, and then I started walking around and telling everyone, oh, yeah, Chevys are better than Fords. I never clue what I was talking about. Like, I didn't know anything about the engines. I was just like, yeah, Chevrolet. So I'm driving the truck around and all proud of it and all that kind of stuff. Until it starts shooting fire out of the tailpipes and filling intersections with black smoke. Now, the fire was pretty cool, actually. <laughs> but the, the smoke, not so, not so cool. Um, I'd have people cursing at me. And I'm just sitting there in the intersection like, oh, I can't really do anything. <laughs> so I got rid of that vehicle. I got rid of it, and I purchased a Jeep Cherokee. Now, guess what, guess what the best vehicles were now, all of a sudden? Jeeps. I even had a sign that said Jeep parking only, right? So uh, my how quickly things change, right? <laughs> we're, we're fickle people. We stick with brands just as long as they provide for us what we want or they meet our needs. And then when they don't, they don't deliver, we, we get rid of them. And that's utilitarian. Like, I'm not saying it should be any, any different way for brands of cars. But, you know, sometimes we treat people the way we treat our vehicles. You know, so long as you meet my needs, so long as you perform how I want you to, so long as I'm happy with you, I'll keep you. And then when you don't anymore, I get rid of you. And some of us in this room probably have felt the deep pain of being abandoned, of feeling rejected, some from parents, some from loved ones, some from uh, a spouse. The crazy thing is we all make mistakes in a relationship. And, and, and I think in our hearts sometimes we wonder, like, are people going to give up on me? Like, what if this person does that to me? And, and, and I, I actually think one... We, we, we debate, is it even possible to, to experience unconditional love? Like, is it even a real thing that somebody would love and love and never stop loving no matter what I do to them? We, we wonder, you know, we, we, we hear the songs and we, you know, endless love and all this stuff, but like, is it even possible? Is it real? I've even seen people purposefully push someone away, I think, just to test. Is their love legit? Like they're pushing, treating them terribly because they want to see, will they really love me? I think sometimes teenagers may do this, right? It's kind of like, you say you love me, you really going to love me? In our study of Romans last week, we saw Israel had pushed God away. In the very last verse, we, we ended on there in, in chapter 10. You might look at it if you have your Bible open. God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. So Israel's pushing Yahweh away. He's, he's, they're pushing God away, stiff-arming him, and 
So the real big question when you come into chapter 11 is, okay, Israel has rejected God, so will God reject Israel? Here's how Israel has treated their God, so how's God going to respond? That's the question as we come into the first couple verses of chapter 11. Now, if this is all new to you, maybe you haven't been in our Roman study or you don't You're not read up on the Old Testament history of what's happened with Israel. Let me just remind you that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, God promised to a man named Abraham certain things. He promised him that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars, as as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And not just that, he promised him that his descendants would have a special relationship with him, with God, a covenant. And he said that, Those people, the Israelites, would actually be a blessing or a conduit of blessing to all the nations. So this relationship with God and Abraham and all of his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth, through David. This is the history of the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, it's this covenant between God and the Jewish people. And there's an agreement there. And, And the Israelites often, often do not keep their end of the agreement. And they They move on to other idols and they don't worship Yahweh. God keeps bringing them back. God keeps working in them. And this is the whole story of the Old Testament. I want you to know uh, this is very relevant for us. Even if you're not of Jewish descent, and probably most of us don't have a Jewish ethnicity. But this is extremely relevant to us. As we come into chapter 11, we're really reading about the Jewish people. We're reading about Israel. But Israel is a test case for us. And here's why I say that. If God would give up on his old covenant people, what's to say he's not going to give up on his new covenant people? If Israel can push God away enough times that God says, enough, moving on to somebody else, then what's to say that he's not going to do that with you or I? We often think, well, how thick-headed the Israelites were, right? I mean, they, they had all these miracles. They had the, the, the Red Sea split, manna from heaven, water from a rock. I mean, they saw all these glorious things. What's their problem? And uh, here we are, post-cross, with, with all this, right? All of this revelation, not only do we have recorded everything that happened to Israel, we have more than that. We have the miracles of Jesus, We have the Holy Spirit who comes in to us and changes. We have all of this, and yet we often are just as stubborn. So the way that God treats stubborn Israel is a test case for the way that he treats stubborn us. Can God be pushed enough that he'll just throw away his people, give up on them? Or is that not the case? If we can be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is faithful to his covenant, no matter what, then we can be sure he'll be faithful to us, or in other words, we'll believe what we read in, in Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. Remember, we were there just a little while ago where Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the truth of that text in Romans 8 that we just looked at, the truth of that text is the same truth of this text here this morning in Romans 11. God doesn't throw away his people. He keeps them by his grace. So I want to read with you Romans chapter 11. If you'll follow along as I read Romans 11, 1 through 10, here's what God's word says. Starting in Romans 11, verse 1, we'll read through verse 10. 
And Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? And this is from 1 Kings when Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? God said this, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul continues on. He says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is God's word. Now it ends on a kind of dark note here, and we'll get to why that is in just a bit, but the overwhelming theme here is that God doesn't throw away his people. God will never throw away his people. There's a question and answer in verse one here. You you notice the question is, has God rejected his people? And this is the question we should be asking when we consider the way that Israel has by and large rejected Jesus. Has God rejected his people? Answer in verse one, by no means. That's a phrase that Paul likes to use a lot and he's used it throughout the book of Romans, which means certainly not or absolutely not or God forbid or maybe in our modern vernacular, it's just like no, 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 it will never be. God does not do this. And just in case uh, there's any confusion, Paul rephrases in verse two the answer. He says, no, God has not rejected his people. But how can this be? Because if you know what's happening in, in church history here, you know that by and large Israel has rejected the Messiah. And now God has started to work with the Gentiles. More and more, the people who are coming into the church are non Jewish. So hasn't God just moved on, found a new people? Even though Israel was disobedient and contrary, chapter 10, verse 21. They were still his people. He still claims them. This struck me, verse one and two. Notice, in Paul's writing, he says, has God rejected his people? Verse two, no, God has not rejected his people. Almost called the title today, his, because there's some power in the fact that we are his. He's still claiming the Jewish people, even after all that has happened, all in the Old Testament. Now the Messiah comes on the scene Jesus presents his ministry, and his special people, the Israelites, have by and large said, no, no thank you. They esteemed him not, Isaiah 53. They saw him, and they did not see any beauty. They rejected him, and still, God says, you are my people. God's still claiming them. Do you find encouragement in that? I do. The fact that these people have been disobedient and and disrespectful and blasphemous, and God still says they're my people. His people. 
The fact that God chooses to call you and and me a son of God or a daughter of God, despite the many times that I have not acted like a son of God, is a testament to his patience, how long-suffering God can be. The same God of, of Israel is the same God of us. And if you read the Old Testament, I mean, how many times do we see this disobedience? I mean, just read the book of Kings, which is what Paul references here. You know, he, he references 1 Kings. Read through the Kings. See how many times it says, and this king did, was, did what was evil in the eyes of God. He did not follow the faith of his, of his father or his forefather. And he was wicked and he set up this altar and he led the people into idolatry and so on and so forth. Or the judges, right? The judges have this cycle of disobedience, this cycle of just degradation. It's kind of like a downward spiral, really. And yet, through it all, God holds out his arms to a disobedient and contrary people. Chapter 10, the very end there. This is God, Yahweh, still calling them my people. They're still his people. Paul doesn't write incorrectly. Why? Verse 2 says, they are his people whom he foreknew. God decided way beforehand to call this people. He decided, I'm going to know this people. I'm going to work in Israel. I mean, he knew them way before they knew him. So God foreknows Abraham. He foreknows all the Israelites he's going to work in. Their security as a nation is based on God's initiative and his interest in them. That's what it's based on. You know, if you, if you, uh, it's one thing to know a famous person, right? Like you might say, I know that person. We know way more about celebrities than we even should today because of social media, right? But it's one thing to know about somebody who's famous, maybe even have met them. You feel like you know them. It's another thing for somebody famous to know you, to take initiative in your life to find out about who you are. Now, if you have that kind of relationship with somebody famous, you actually know them. They know about you. You know about them. And here we have God taking initiative, getting to know a, a people before they're even born. He foreknows them. God purposed to know Israel before they existed, and then he followed through. So because God's people are foreknown, they can't be forsaken. It's impossible. They can't be forsaken because they've been foreknown. Now, notice how different that is from, if I said it this way, Israel could not be forsaken because they were obedient. If that was it, if that was the scenario, Israel can't be forsaken because they're obedient, then they'd be in a lot of trouble, and you would be in a lot of trouble, and I would be in a lot of trouble, right, if it was based on my obedience. No, that's not what it says. They're not forsaken because they're foreknown. God knows them. He took initiative in their life. So here's such a beautiful thing, you know, for Israel and for us. It's true for them, it's true for us. Our security, our identity, it's rooted not in our performance, but it's rooted in God's initiative, in God's election, in God's foreknowledge. In other words, God did not elect us because we are special. We are special because he elected us. He didn't look and say, oh, yes, Mark, gonna gonna choose him, work with him. He's pretty special. Even though the people that know me would probably say I'm special, you know. God says, I love you because I love you. It's his grace. It's not because something in me that wasn't in somebody, some, in somebody else. And so I'm special because I am chosen by God. See, this idea that he foreknew them and so he won't forsake them, it's tied together. No, he won't forsake his people because he foreknew them. He elected them. Again, this is different than the way we do things in our world. I mean, who gets picked first at recess? The strongest, 
the fastest. You know, we always played soccer at recess, so we divvied up the teams. And, you know, we had little bands, little gangs. I'm on his, in his gang. And it was all, you know, who's best? Who's the best soccer player? Uh, there wasn't really pity picks, you know. You picked who was best. And that's how we do things in our world, you know. But God doesn't work that way. God doesn't pick the strongest, the fastest, the, the greatest, the most popular. No, God chooses the Israelites, which Scripture says they were not a, a massive people. They were not really anything special. But he chose them because he loved them. Now, a cursory reading of the Old Testament might lead you to believe that he chose poorly, right? <laughs> he chose this people who just couldn't get their act together, right? Like, God, maybe you should have gone with a different, maybe the Egyptians or somebody else. Like, really, the Israelites, that's who you picked? But God does that for a reason because in the end, it magnifies his grace. It doesn't magnify them as a people, And here's the thing we learn as we come into Romans 11, and we'll see this in the weeks to come. The story is not over. You can just glance through chapter 11, but you see what's going to come here is this teaching that God is not done with Israel. The final chapter isn't written. It's not over yet. And in the end, Israel will not be known for their failures. They will be known for God's faithfulness. I don't think that in heaven we're going to sit around and go, yeah, those Israelites, huh? There's such a failure. No, we're going to magnify the faithfulness of God. That's what the story is all about, and that is what he's doing even now in groups of people in national Israel. God will never reject the elect. He can't do it. It's an impossibility. They are his people. I want to read you 1 Samuel 12, 22, and, and this is Samuel in his final address, and he says this, For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So God's reputation, his glory is on the line. He will never reject his people. It's an impossibility because they're his people. And he's, he's set them apart for his own namesake, for himself. Jeremiah 31, 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then... I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, as soon as we can exhaustively measure the galaxies in our outer space, and as soon as we can make it to the very center of the earth, then God will give up on his people, which is an impossibility. I mean, Jeremiah is writing in a time when they didn't have a telescope. They didn't have drilling machines, right? But even today, we can't possibly exhaust the heavens and the outer heavens and the galaxies. No, it's an impossibility for God to give up on his people. God will not throw away Israel. Paul gives us some proofs in our text here in Romans eleven two. Exhibit A is Paul, formerly known as Saul. And if you think about Paul's former life as Saul, he is a shining example of an Israelite who tried to be right with God every way he could outside of Jesus, right? He is this cream of the crop Pharisee. He's well-learned. He's a teacher. He's, he's a perfect example of a Jew, and then he rejects Jesus. And so here we have Paul, formerly Saul, who was trying to maintain right standing with God based on his works, what he did. And he's really a, an example of Romans 10, 3, and 4 that we saw last chapter where we read this. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, this is speaking of the Jews, and seeking to establish their own, 
righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Paul was a, a hard-hearted Jew extraordinaire. I mean, he is, he's like aiding in the murder of Jews, uh, in the murder of Christians. Paul is actually killing Christians. So here we have a perfect example of the hard-hearted Jew who is righteous, but yet rejects Jesus. And so Paul is, is saying, God's not done with Israel, look at me. Did God throw away this hard-hearted Jew? Oh no, I mean, Paul may be the very best example of recycling that our world has ever seen. Right? Because he, with all of his intellectual acumen and all of his uh, giftedness and his knowledge of the scripture and his education and all of that, what does God do? God repurposes him. God takes him and recycles him. He doesn't throw him away and say, I'm done. I'm done with my people who are rebellious. Paul could have easily been just done. But God takes him and he redeems him. He saves him. He repurposes him to start churches, to plant, the, you know, plant all these churches and to spread the gospel. What a beautiful picture of how God does not give up on the Jewish people. So Paul is exhibit A. Paul was this, I mean, he, he even gives us his tribe. He, he's a Jew. And yet God wasn't done with the Jews. Then in verse 2 and following, we have another proof that God doesn't throw away his people. We have exhibit B, which is Elijah and the 7,000. Now, Paul is referencing history here from the book of 1 Kings 18 and 19. And if you've never read the account of Elijah, go back, read 1 Kings you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Fascinating. I mean, what God was doing, very, very, uh, the miracles that happen are pretty powerful. But this comes at a time in Israel's history that is very dark, that is very sinful, very disobedient, maybe one of their lowest points, honestly. We have Ahab, who is the king. He is the epitome of evil. And he's actually the better half, all right? <laughs> like, it, the only person worse than Ahab is his wife, Jezebel, who is a Jezebel, right? She, she is so sinful. The two of them are leading the country into further idol worship. And it's just a real low point. And this is a bad time for Israel. And uh, Elijah pretty much feels like it's over. I'm the only righteous person left in the whole nation. And then he decides, I'm going to take on the prophets of Baal single-handedly. And he does. And thankfully, God shows up big time. And God brings fire down from heaven, literally. And it's this amazing account. But even after all of that, God shows himself through the fire Jezebel says, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah runs away, finds a juniper tree, lays underneath it. He's depressed. He asks to die. And, and you have to understand, he's, he's looking at this going, where are your people? Like, I'm the only one left, and, and my life hangs in the balance? What a nation we are. This is a bleak picture, God. Just take me out now. And, and he's, I mean, he is looking at, at, at the big picture, what he thinks is the big picture, and he's He's depressed. But how does God answer? And Paul recounts for us what God says. God says, I have kept 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. Wow. So even in one of the darkest epics of Israel's history, God is reserving a people. He's protecting 7,000 people that Elijah had no idea about. He's keeping their faith. He's protecting their faith. They haven't bowed to Baal. They won't because he's reserving them. That was a small minority, but it is a lot bigger than what Elijah realized. And so then Paul in verse 5, he brings that to the modern day of, of his day, and he says, so too, at the present time there is a remnant. That's what we call a remnant, a group of people that are set aside, 
Yes, smaller, but set aside. Paul's making it clear that he's like Elijah. He's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm like Elijah. I'm, God changed me. God's not done with Israel yet. Look what he did with me. But I'm not even the only one. There's a remnant. There's other people out there. And this is how we can say that God hasn't rejected Israel. Because if you look at the big picture, you might say, well, the Jews, I mean, God's moving on from the Jews. He's, no, he still loves the Jews, and he's still working in certain Jews, part of the remnant. You might remember the circle within a circle that we showed you when we were going through Romans 9, where we can, you know, we can say there was all of Israel, but then there was this smaller subset of Israel called the remnant, spiritual Israel, or you might even say true Israel. So true Israel is still being saved. They're still, God is working in them. Paul's in that category, right? In Elijah's day, it was the 7,000 in Elijah. There's always, always a remnant. God has his people and he's working in them and he's not gonna throw in the towel. God holds on to his promises. He keeps his people. You know, recently I had to uh, do some work on my car that is 17 years old. And uh, it was substantial work. And I had someone from the congregation say, you know, Mark, sometimes it's just, you know, time to let a car go. You know, just say goodbye, you know, be done with it. I looked at him and said, does God do that with us? <laughs> I didn't actually do that at all. It was, that's, that's not true. I didn't get spiritual, I didn't spiritualize it. I didn't get like biblically nerdy on him. I, but but I, I, I wanted to keep my car. Like I just, <laughs> I mean, I don't make car payments on it. It's got a good engine. Like I just, it's worth it to me to try to keep it around. So for me, it had worth, right? Even though he was like, hey, you might want to, you know. If you or I were God, we would have given up on us a long time ago. We would have just been you know, done. Too much work, not worth it. We would have uh, kicked Israel to the curb. We would have dismantled the church. We, we would not have the patience that God has. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, there is only one reason why the church goes on, and that is because she is the church of God. If it were our church, we would long since have ruined her. See, this is the church of God. The people of Israel are the people of God. It's God who's doing it. If it were us, we'd be in trouble. God keeps his people. God keeps his people. He's building his kingdom, and it doesn't rise or fall with you or I. I mean, Elijah thought, it's all on me. Like, if I'm taken out, then the whole thing is gone. No, we're important to God, but God is building a kingdom, and it is bigger than we can realize. And it includes people that are Jews, and it includes people that are Gentiles, and all of these people that are the remnant. Why is God keeping his people? First, for himself. God is keeping his people for himself. I want to go back to verse 4. I want you to notice God's reply in verse 4. If you just look at that with me. And God, God's reply to Elijah, as recounted by Paul, is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, interestingly, Paul adds a phrase here, because if you go back to 1 Kings, there's this little phrase, for myself. It's not in the original. It's not, it's not in what God said to Elijah, unless we just don't have it recorded. Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit here, and he tells us, God is saying, I've kept for myself. I think what he's teaching us here is Paul is saying, you want to know what differentiates the 7,000 faithful, pure elect, the remnant from the rest of the people? I mean, is it because they just held on to God tighter and they, they just, they were more spiritual than the rest of Israel? Is that why? No, he, he says, I have kept for myself. In other words, I'm the one who's doing the keeping. 
The reason that there were 7,000 who had not bowed to Baal is because God had kept them. God had kept them for himself. It's God who reserves these individuals. You know, we keep our faith because he keeps us. We keep our faith because God keeps us. And so, you know, in this day in which I hear about celebrity evangelical Christians who walk away from the faith, you know, they led a church for many years. They wrote books. They, you know, wrote worship songs. And then they just one day say, I don't believe any of it. In that day, it can be, it can be sometimes tempting for us to say, well, what, what guarantee do I have that I'm not going to walk away from the faith? I mean, he seems more spiritual than me. And I would just say to you that God keeps his people for himself. He does the keeping. He's the one who keeps these 7,000 Israelites. He's the one who changes Paul and keeps Paul. He's the same one that keeps us. And, and again, notice he keeps us for himself. Notice the intimacy. Notice the, the relationship. The whole goal of purity and faithfulness is not so I can shine, you know. I'm one of the 7,000, you know, one of the remnant it's not about me shining, it's about God, his light shining, and for me to have an intimate relationship with God. That's why we even try to remain faithful. That's why we try to stay pure. It's not about us. You know, I think about a verse that I heard a lot growing up. I grew up in a church that very much emphasized holiness, which is good. I'm glad they did. That's biblical. But uh, I think sometimes we emphasize external holiness a little too much, not internal holiness. But one of the verses I heard a lot growing up was from 2 Corinthians where God says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The whole reason for me to try to maintain purity and, and hold on to my faith and all of that is really because I desire this relationship with my Father, my Heavenly Father. My, my, my whole desire for holiness, to please Him, should be in relationship to Him. So when we think about this remnant, whether it be the, those in Elijah's day, whether it be Paul and those Jews who he says there's a remnant, or us today, it's not about us. It's not about us being the pure ones, the ones who just held on to God tighter. No, 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 it's about God him getting the glory, and it's about us being able to have this intimate relationship. I, I love the fact that God said, I have reserved for myself. So believer, if, if you're here today and you trusted in Jesus Christ, God has reserved you for himself, for a relationship with him. Not just so you can be this, you know, set apart one that everyone looks at and goes, whoa, you know, they're so spiritual. No, it's for himself that you can have a relationship with him. God keeps us for himself, but I also want you to notice at the end of our text that he keeps his people from destruction. For himself, we are kept, and from destruction. So verse 9 and 10, that's where we ended, and it seems kind of a little out of place, and you're like, well, what's going on here? We have a quote from Psalm 69, and David, in that psalm, he's pronouncing judgment on the enemies of God. It's like an imprecatory psalm, you know, where those that are enemies of Yahweh, he is saying, judgment on them. And so verse 9 and uh, 10 come from this psalm, Psalm 69. Let's read it again. Follow along with me. Uh, Romans 10, uh, 11, 9 and 10. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and, their, and bend their backs forever. So this is what God's enemies deserve. Because of their rejection of Yahweh, because of the way that they have 
acted. But here in Romans 11, Paul's applying it to the Jewish people. So we're like, what are you doing, Paul? I mean, surely he's inappropriate with his scriptural use here, with his application. I mean, he's taking a text that brings judgment on the enemies of, of God and the enemies of Israel, and he's applying it to Israel? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> well, actually, rebellious Israel has acted just like God's enemies. They have done the things that God's enemies have done. They've worshiped all the other idols. They have turned their back on God. And they actually deserve the same fate that God's enemies deserve. The same fate that every one of us deserves if we reject Christ. Think about Israel. I mean, God had given them such a table full of blessings. I mean, think about all that they had in Romans recounts this, right? They have the law. They have the covenants. They have the Messiah who comes through Israel. A regular cornucopia of blessings. And all of those blessings, they became drunk with privilege. It led to a stupor in verse 8. I want to read verse 8 again for you. This is the state of Israel. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So as sad as it is, Israel, in the rejection of the Messiah, deserves this darkness and this eternal rejection. That's what they deserve. Again, I see a parallel between Israel and the United States. We mentioned this before. But we have so many blessings that God's given us as a people, right? I mean, abundant physical blessings, a table full of blessings. We have spiritual blessings and heritage in this country. And all of that has actually become, for us, our undoing. Our incredible privilege has become our undoing. Like Israel, we're in a stupor. We have eyes that can't see. We have ears that can't hear. And so in our blind, deaf, anesthetized state, we're marching like lemmings, you know, towards a cliff. This is the general state of humanity in this country today, unaware of Jesus Christ, unaware of the gospel, just kind of in a stupor, plodding along, headed for destruction. But the good news in this whole scripture text is that while most will not awaken from the stupor, some will. That's the remnant there's always a remnant. So even today, in the United States, God is saving people for his own glory. We see it, right? We see it in, in, the, in the region here, and we praise God for his work and what he's doing here. We see it throughout the country. We see it around the world. God is doing his work. There is a remnant. God is not done with his people. And Paul's living proof, right? I mean, Paul was somebody who had his spiritual eyes opened and his physical eyes opened, on the road to Damascus, he is blinded and then God takes away the, the scales from off his eyes and spiritually removes the scales from off of his eyes and his heart. And so Paul knew very well, God's not done yet. God's still working. He's still, even in this land of privilege where the privilege has become the undoing, made them proud, it made them arrogant, it made them self-righteous. And yet God is still saving Jews. He's doing it through Paul. He's doing it through others. Why? Why does he do this? Verse 5, notice this. Why? Well, let me read verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And this phrase, the remnant chosen by grace, is loaded with meaning. I mean, just so much meaning here. So much that Paul finds it necessary to reemphasize grace. In the next verse, he, he basically says grace means grace. It has nothing to do with works, he says. It's grace. The very nature of grace excludes work. It is getting what we 
don't deserve, that's grace. So this remnant that that survives, this remnant that believes, it's because of grace. They're chosen by grace. We dodge a bullet when we're saved by grace. Because what we deserve is to remain in our blind, deaf stupor. That's what we deserve. We deserve verse 9 and 10. That's what Israel deserves. That's what we deserve. But then here, what God does is he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us grace. He gives us grace upon grace. We deserve what verse 9 calls retribution. That's actually what we deserve. Retribution for all the sin that we have committed. And in our hardness, we should experience the judgment of verse 9 and 10. That's just. But praise the Lord, God is not only just. He is that. But he's also a God of mercy. He's a God, yes, that hates sin. But he's a God that welcomes the sinner and forgives the sinner, and then calls him a son of God, calls her a daughter of God. We have that kind of God who is just and merciful. Now this is impossible based on our works. This can't happen. A sinner can't be declared righteous based on their works. No, that can't happen. Our election and our protection is never because of our works. Thank the Lord. Right? If my protection was based on my works, I'm in trouble. If my election was based on the works that I would do, I'm in trouble. No, it's based on grace. The only reason that God can lavish us with grace, the only reason at all, is because his son received the judgment in his own body for me on the cross, as Scripture says. He deserved the retribution, verse 9 talks about. That's what happened, is that Jesus actually became sin for those that are sinners who trust in Jesus Christ. This is what happened. Retribution poured out on Jesus so that we can have a God who's just, who also treats us with mercy. Jesus took the bullet for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You know, if you, uh, if you go back and you read Psalm 69, one of the beautiful things you find, this is the Psalm Paul is quoting here, Psalm 69. Throughout the psalm, there are a number of messianic references, little, little snapshots of what will happen with the suffering Savior. And these are things that David wrote, and he was speaking of his own suffering, but the New Testament tells us this applies to Jesus. A couple of them here are uh, when, when David says, my throat is parched. Later, Jesus will have a, a parched throat. When, when the psalmist says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. Also reference to Jesus later. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And then another one, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So, you know, David is writing and he's describing his own suffering and it applies in his day to himself. But actually what we'll find out in the future is that Jesus is hanging on the cross and Jesus is experiencing this kind of suffering where he is given uh, wine to drink, that he is mistreated, that the reproaches that, that fall on God, his father, have, have fallen on him. There's little foreshadowing of the cross in, back here in Psalm 69. So you think about this. Here we have the heart of grace. Undeserved favor. I don't deserve it. Why do I receive grace? Because the suffering and the retribution, verse 9, that should fall upon me, fell on Jesus when he hung on that cross. This is why we can have a God who elects people and, and brings them for himself as his remnant. That's the only reason. Again, it's not, just, it's not because 
He saw something in you. It's not because of your performance. The sin thing has to be dealt with. God is just, and he does that through his son. I'm so thankful that we have a savior who suffered the retribution that I deserve. So we, the remnant, both Jews and Gentiles, though we be in the minority, we can be sure God will keep us from destruction. He will keep us for himself. Think about that, that intimate relationship. Why? He did it with his people Israel. He's doing it with his people Israel. He does it with his new covenant people, which is Israel and non-Israelites. We are his. He will never throw us away. We are his. He will never throw us away. I, ha- I brought with me a very special dog here this morning. His name's Charcoal, right? And um, not only is he special to Presley, uh, my youngest, he's special to me because he was my pound puppy when I was young. Really young, I'm sure. I probably didn't keep him until I was older, but anything. But obviously I had him, <clears throat> and then I passed him on. We lost Charcoal a little while back in Pennsylvania, or at least we thought. We didn't know where he was, and so we started to panic a little bit. You know, both of us, we were talking about it. I'm like, Presley, I don't know. I guess maybe we were at a rest stop. You know, you stop at like a ton of rest stops when you drive across a couple states. I said, maybe he fell out, and I don't know. I don't know where he is. And we asked family, and they said, we don't have him. And so we were like, we were pretty discouraged. And I actually had this mental picture, which I made the mistake of sharing with her. I don't know why. But I pictured this poor little guy with his eyes like poking out of like a, a landfill somewhere. And I was like, that is sad, man. That is sad. This is my, this is my, my special little friend. And um, obviously we got him back and the family just couldn't find him at first and then found him. So the end of the story is good. Uh, but I was thinking about this as I was preparing him. I don't think we're that different from charcoal, right? I mean, honestly, he's, he's not all that. I mean, he, he's not a good guard dog. Um, he, he really... Uh, he really doesn't play fetch very well. Uh, the positive is he's potty trained. That's good. But like if you, if you could see this dog up close, he's missing a nose. That fell off. Um, he's got a split in his, his face a little bit. He's worn. His neck, I mean, it's like, look at that thing. It's just like, I mean, he's, we're not that different. We're not that different. You know, why, why is he special? He's special to Presley because he's worth more than the sum of his parts, Right? And I, and I think we're, we're kind of like this, you know, we're, um, maybe we're not that much to look at, maybe we, you know, we don't have all that much to give to God, but he loves us. He has a special relationship with us. All because of his grace, he keeps us for himself. He's never going to throw us out. I am sure that Presley probably will never throw this dog out. I won't ever throw this dog out. It means something to us, and we to God. God loves us. And you say, why? I don't know. Because he loves us. And that's the story really here in the book of Romans as we, as we are into chapter 11 now. It's like God loved his people all along the way. Even with all of their disobedience. Even with they had nothing to offer God. And yet he continued to lavish his grace upon them. Will he forget his people? Will he forsake his people? Will he throw them away? He never will. And believer, that's true for you as well. Whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your background is, The Father loves you. He foreknew you. He kept you for himself. He's not going to give up on you. He is a God who does not give up on his people. He keeps us.